0: We have some some news that's out. Uh, It came out yesterday referencing, I guess, an episode on 48 hours that's supposed to be airing tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Central, 10 p.m. Eastern time, <clears throat> referencing uh, the Idaho case, and there's been some new developments, some new information basically that has come out in the uh, in the case from one of the victims' fathers, uh, father Steve Gonzalez, father of Kaylee Gonzalez. They put out, I guess, a little bit of a preview of what's going to be said tomorrow in that episode of 48 Hours. But let's read this. This is from CBS News. We'll read this article, and we'll stop. We'll discuss, and we'll see how this, this information figures in with what we know about and how it maybe perhaps could clear up a few things. So it says here the November 13, 2022 murders of Kaylee, Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapman, students of the University of Idaho, left the nation stunned and the families of the victims searching for answers. Brian Koberger, charged in the case, faces four counts of first-degree murder and one count of burglary. Uh, judge has entered a not guilty plea on his behalf. As attention turns to Koberger's trial, the murders remain unexplainable with questions lingering. I don't know what happened. Jasmine Jasmine Kernel, sister of Zanna Kernel, told 48 Hours correspondent Peter Van St uh, in her first interview. I wish we knew uh, they were all four of them were just such great people and made such an impact on the lives around them. She quoted, was quoted stating, Jasmine and her father, Jeffrey Kernel, spoke with Van Sant in the night of the Idaho murders airing Saturday, September 16th at 10 p.m. Van Saint. Uh, asked Jeffrey Knurdle about reports of his daughter, Zanna, fought back against the attacker. He says, I believe so. Uh, Knurdle replied, it's so upsetting to think about. I can imagine, you know, how upsetting that could be. I mean, you know, even though it's been a few months since this has occurred, there's still a lot of firsts that are happening in this situation. You know, with these families, like birthdays, uh, anniversaries, you know, um, they had a graduation that they were supposed to have graduated at, you know, it's all been less than a year, so they're still going through their first first uh, things to happen after the incident. I can't imagine how hard it is for them to have to relive this nightmare every day and really not be able to start the next step in the morning process until there's justice served. You know what I'm saying? And, and the right person, whether it's Brian Koberger or not. Is convicted and is behind bars. And, you know, depending on, you know, what the uh, state of Idaho wants to do with the fact of the uh, result of the, uh, if he is found guilty, uh, the firing squad or not, you know, that's up to them. But, you know, they're going to have to relive this moment several times, you know, having to talk about it every time they go on an interview, having to hear about it when it comes out on the news, having to hear about it. When a court starts and trial starts, because every time that there's a article or a news story or anything about this case, the first things you hear are the tragic events that occurred. Every single time, you know, you hear they were slain. There were you know, the manner in which they were their lives were taken, and I can't imagine of having to hear that over and over again. It's unimaginable, in my opinion. Let's continue. It says, also interviewed were Kaylee Gonzalez's parents, Christy and Steve Gonzalez, and Kaylee's sister, Olivia Gonzalez. We're not going to just sit back and cross our fingers and pray. We're going to get justice, Steve Gonzalez said. That desire for justice led the Gonzalez family to undertake their own investigation was speaking with authorities before a gag order was put in place. Steve Gonzalez says, according to the coroner, uh, the first victim was. Mogan, both Mogan and Gonsalves were sleeping in the same bed in a room on the third floor in the house. After killing Mogan, the assailant then went on to attack Kaylee, Steve Gonzalez said. So I know there's been a lot of questions on whether or not, you know, Kaylee walked in and, you know, caught Koberger or whoever, you know, committing this crime in the moment. Uh, there's evidence that indicates that that's not the case. Apparently, her body was between the wall and Madison Mogan. There's no evidence of her coming in and, and all the evidence kind of points to them sleeping in the same bed, which is not something that is uncommon for girls that, that age. And especially these, you know, these girls that have known each other their entire lives. They have basically grown up together and, you know, they were up late and they had been drinking. They were calling, you know, Kaylee's ex-boyfriend, you know, things like that. So I, I could imagine that they did fall asleep in the same bed. I think that's one way to kind of put that rumor to bed that, that no, Kaylee wasn't in her room. She was asleep in, in that bed uh, next to Maddie which also would lead you to believe that Murphy, the dog was always in Kaylee's room, right? Because I don't think he's going to go in into Maddie's room and then the dog start barking and everybody's going to wake up and, you know, it's just not going to work out. So I don't think he even goes in there, takes the dog out and puts and locks it up in Kaylee's room. I don't think that's the case either. So I, I'm assuming that Murphy was always in Kaylee's room, which would make sense. I mean, they went out late, that night. They got home early in the morning. You know, when I've done that, you know, my dogs sometimes wake up. Most of the time they just keep laying down and then fall back asleep where they were. So, you know, if she got home at, at around, you know, two in the morning or And and her dog's asleep in her bedroom. I don't think she's going to go and just wake up the dog just to bring her in with Maddie with her into Madison's room. You know, and there's no at that point, there's probably no discussion like, hey, are we going to fall asleep in the same bed? I think that was something that just happened naturally. You know what I'm saying? So um, she may have not even had considered that when she got home, that she wasn't going to be going back to her bedroom. You know what I'm saying? So there's there's a lot of things that folks assume. And there's including myself in, in this scenario, I think this just kind of clears up those uh, thoughts and then kind of gets you a, um, a clearer picture when you look at this situation as far as like deducing what possibly happened. All right. So let's continue this. The evidence shows that she was awakened and tried to get out of the situation. Says Gonzalez, She was assaulted and stabbed. It doesn't say that she fought back, though. Here, here's the concern I have with this. If she woke up and she tried to get away, why didn't she scream? Like, where's the yells? Those walls are paper thin the audio from the house next door that took up the ring audio that heard the barking, the whispering, the whimpering, you know, the low voices, it would have surely had picked up a scream. So, I mean, that's just the one thing that I have like, okay, I I understand it, but to me, I think there's some pieces missing there. I I do think that she was in between Maddie and the door and the wall and did sleep there. I'm just not, I'm not sure if, if she would have woken up and not say anything, but you never know. You know, some people do freeze. In those moments, but Steve says there's evidence that shows that she tried to get away. So then maybe she didn't freeze. So I'm not sure. So let's uh, continue. Since Christy Gonzalez explains that her daughter had several uh, fatal wounds and that the way the bedroom was set up, it made it difficult to escape. The bed was up against the wall, the headboard was touching the wall, and the left side of the bed with was touching the wall as well. And we believe that Maddie was on the outside and Kaylee was on the inside. Uh, the way the bed was set up, she was trapped, Christy Gonzalez believes. The assailant was not expecting to find uh, the two best friends together in the same bed. I do think that his plan went to Ray. I do think that, you know, he intended to kill one and, and end up killing four. You know, everybody has an opinion and, and can speculate and things of that nature. I'm not sure it's very good professional journalism, to ask somebody something that they don't know right like there's no way that christy would have known uh that coberger wasn't expecting to find the, the two best friends in the bed together which logically that makes sense but there's no way she would have known that, that right uh and then she goes i think the point to ray i do think you know he intended just to kill one and four got taken like all those things that's speculation i don't think that that's something and also, it's it's without facts. We can't say that those things are true. Right. And, and like Josh said, you have to take what they say with a grain of salt because, you know, they are highly emotional in this case, obviously, and for obvious reasons. And, you know, they speak out of emotion at times. When you talk about this like this, I, I don't blame the victims and questions or anybody who's answering the questions from the person who is interviewing them. But you can't blame you know, the the person being interviewed for the the answers they give based on the questions that they're being asked, right? So if somebody asks a person, hey, what do you think? When you know, they, they can't possibly know. So anything that they say uh, is just, you know, assumption. And it, yet they'll still ask, what do you think happened? Why do you think happened? Where do you think, you know, all those type of things. It muddies up the water, so to speak, right? And so, Let's continue. Steve and Christy Gonzalez say investigators' information also led them to believe that Brian Koger may have been scouting trips to the student's house where the murders occurred. He had to know when people were coming and going, Steve, Steve Gonsalves says. And I agree based on the the fact that the FBI cast team did in fact get him in the area you know some 12 different times. He would have scoped out the place if he did commit this crime. I'm not saying he, he exactly did. He's innocent until proven guilty. i personally think that the police got this right, but I honestly do not know. I don't know. I don't have all the evidence in front of me. With that being said, being there 12 times, it just kind of depends on on how often if if we know that in August is when he got pulled over. And according to you know information from the law enforcement and the state and PCA, that that was one of the times um, that was following one of the times that he was around in the area. So you have August possibly being when he had um, started doing this. We also know that one of the victims' social media, I want to say it was Bethany's, she had posted out a picture with all of the uh, occupants of that house like two weeks earlier, uh, before Brian Koberger got stopped. And it said something about, the, you know, the best roommates or whatnot, referencing because she had just moved in there. Now, I don't know how many of those, you know, occupants were new to that house. I don't know how many had been in that house since you know the prior semester and and summer, but if majority of them are new that semester, that means that Koberger would have found this house within two weeks of you know them moving in and started his following. I I think that this is possible. You know my theory is that you know he wanted to create a huge crime, you know something that gained national attention and wouldn't be solved and You know, I think he was looking for a house with multiple occupants for possible multiple victims, you know, and he could just drive around sometime around that time. You know, they have around around that time. You're going to have like housewarming parties and things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was kind of looking for those type of parties around that time whose occupants were female. Right. And because, you know, the reason why they would be females is, is. it would be an advantage to him physically, and also because he'd also look at the fact that high-profile cases are usually young, attractive victims. You know, that's just the base. That's just it. In fact, there was a, a a murder that occurred similar to this one, not that far away from Moscow, Idaho, where somebody broke in and stabbed two people to death. That that case is unsolved, and yet that didn't gain national attention. You know, what's the reason why behind it? You know, some people started to look into that case once this case occurred, but not to the extent that this case was, and and that flame dwindled pretty quickly on that case as well. You know, my opinion is because you have young, you know, and attractive uh, victims, and so because of that, and you have multiple of them, uh, I think that's the main reason why this case grew so much attention. My theory is, and this kind of, I guess, explains why you know a a Range Rover parked in the uh, front of the house. Wouldn't bother him as much as we would have thought if his goal was just to, you know, go into this house and have multiple, you know, the goal was to have multiple victims. Uh, and then maybe that wouldn't bother him as much. But I digress. Let's go back into this. So, Steve and Christie say that investigators' information also led them to believe Coburger may have made scouting trips to the student's house where the murders occurred. He had to know where people were coming and going. Yeah, that's where I was at. So we do know that he was there 12 times, you know, since August. That's what August, September, October, November. That's four months. That's three times a month. You know, I'm a little bit concerned with that because it doesn't necessarily sound like somebody's stalking. It depends how close he got to the house and how long he was out there. There's nothing that's been reported that he's ever been inside close to the house. You know, we don't know that yet. Not saying that that wasn't case. I think that that would be pretty important to put in the probable cause affidavit as to a reason why you're arresting this guy. You know, you put on there that he's been to that area 12 times. You know, you have this cast work that basically pinpoints you down to the feet, uh, uh, you know, down feet, not to the feet, down to feet versus yards or miles. Right. And so if he actually ever stepped foot on that property, why not actually put that there? So I don't think he's actually been on the property, but how close to the property has he been? If he was parking behind, you know, the house in that parking lot area, you know, that's relatively close. That's not on property. You know, I I would like to know how far and what is the margin of error on that type of stuff. Christy Christy Gonzalez wonders if Koberger had ever gone inside the home saying, I think he at least had to open the door, went in test the waters and looked around. There's no evidence of that yet. I'm not saying that that's not true. Maybe they do know something we don't know. You know, maybe authorities told them something prior to the gag order. I don't know. All right, let's continue. The Gonzalves also think that they may have found a possible connection through Instagram between Brian Koberger, their daughter, and Maddie Mogad. They believe they found Koberger's Instagram account and have been following Kaylee and Maddie's Instagrams. From our investigation of the account, it appeared that the real Brian Koberger account, that it is the real Koberger account, says Christy. Here, here's the thing. I was um, listening to this uh this guy the other day who was claiming to have been close to the case, you know how that all goes. But this guy is actually a uh, he claims to be like some sort of psychic, which I don't really you know buy into. But he claims that he's been used in a couple of cases. Not so much because, you know, he's found things. I think he's basically, in my opinion, um, when it comes to those type of things, some people are just, you know, more um, they got a gift for picking up details and could put things together fairly quickly and can put out information vaguely that can uh, make you think that they know something that they don't. Right. Uh, I'm not completely a disbeliever um, in paranormal or things like that. I I tend to believe in like, you know, UFOs, aliens, ghosts, the whole nine yards. So it's not too far up my, uh, far from my alley, but this guy um, on this podcast and it was verifiable. He had been working on different cases with different police departments throughout the uh, United States. Uh, He had stated that basically Law enforcement had contacted him and he knew a guy that was in the know. Apparently, this guy doesn't live that far away from um, one of the victim's families. And apparently in this podcast, the guy says that law enforcement had called him because one of the uh, fathers of the victims was spewing out too much information and that he may get contacted by them. And, And I didn't really understand why it was a big deal. You know if they would would have, but you know they had contacted him and he apparently knew the one of the officers and and they kind of brought him in, but not really. You know. Well, anyways, I say all that with he stated that this person, whoever committed this crime, that law enforcement said that he was very smart. Not that he, you know, predicted that in his psychic stuff. This is what somebody close to the investigation had told him throughout his connections with law enforcement that. Whoever did this was highly, highly intelligent and very skilled, which kind of matched what I'm thinking is what happened. You know, he went in there, touched things as little as possible so that he didn't, you know, um, put his, you know, that way it would limit the opportunity or the chances of him leaving DNA behind. You know, that's why in my opinion, he didn't open Dylan's doors because based on its proximity or its location, you know, being right across from the uh, kitchen right next to the staircase, I could see how someone would assume that that's a closet. And if you're a person that's trying not to touch things as little as possible, I don't see him opening up a closet door to check that if it's a bedroom he's just going to go to the next you know room that he knows is I don't know that um you know that's why I think maybe perhaps he he uh, skipped Dylan's area but I do think that he is very you know this is what the guy said he's a, a guy that law enforcement told him that the guy was highly intelligent knew what he was doing and that this was something that was said Early on before his arrest, they knew that they were working with somebody who knew they probably even thought maybe this was a guy that had done it before Uh, just because of the fact that how little evidence was left behind and that they knew that this person was highly intelligent to have committed this crime and not touch the things that were typically supposed to be touched. And I also assume that this is an assumption that there are probably things you would assume that a, uh, an offender would have done, you know what I mean? Like, for instance, you know, somebody that would have committed this crime usually is a person who, or usually it's like anger. It's out of, you know, hatred or or something because it's with a knife, close proximity, things like that. And in this situation, none of those things make sense, right? So that's one of the ways you can tell that. And then also the lack of DNA and things like that. Honestly, if we took out that knife sheath, I think that Brian Koberger is a free man, not because they don't have evidence against them, so because they don't know who he is, if that makes sense. Let's continue this. Brian Kober's defense team has stated in court filings. Oh, you know what? Before I go further, I do want to say and talk about the Instagram. Christy told me that too. She said that she was aware an arrest was coming forward. She was given the name Brian Koberger before his arrest was made, you know, was happening before it happened, right? That they that Brian Koberger was going to be arrested. And they went to social media and they took some screenshots of an account of a couple of accounts that were uh uh, to, to Brian Koberger, And on I think it was like maybe two or three accounts. And on all three accounts, they were following Maddie. I think uh, maybe two accounts was following Kaylee. And one account was following all of them uh, outside of Ethan. It wasn't following Ethan. And apparently a lot of Maddie's pictures were liked, most of them. A lot of uh, Kaylee's, but not as much as Maddie's. And, and I don't know if any of Xana's were or not, but it, Christy told me that he took screenshots of this. This was before his arrest and before anybody knew his name. Now, I know that a lot of people say, hey, there's... They said there's no connection. There's no connection. I, I agree. I think this is a pretty puzzling situation. How can you have no connection and still... You know, have somebody following him. I don't understand how that works unless maybe Koberger didn't follow them until after after the incident. You know, a lot of people started following him. Then a lot of people started liking their pictures. Is it possible that he did that after the fact so that way he didn't look different than, you know, the uh, students in on his campus and obviously the students at, at the University of Idaho were doing? Maybe perhaps he thought it would look more suspicious if he didn't follow oh, and like them, being that he was in the area. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. And and if if his if him following them and liking their pictures happened after it was reported and things of that nature, you know, you can't really say that that's connected to this case. I don't think you can use it. Now, if it comes out that he was following them and liking their pictures since you know August, well, that's a little bit more suspicious, in my opinion. You know what I'm saying? So I, I think timing is going to play a huge role in that. All right, so we'll continue. However, Brian Koberger's defense team has already started uh, stated in court filing that there is no connection between Mr. Koberger and the victims. Investigative reporter Howard Blum, who has written extensively about the case uh, for Airmail, a digital newsletter, explains in an interview with 48 Hours, the prosecution will like, everyone to believe that it's an open and shut case. But I think the fact that they make the case perhaps more open than open and shut. Bloom also stated, uh, if no connection between Brian Koberger and the victims can be established, then there is no motive. If there's no motive, then it becomes very hard to make a case that he is the killer. I don't necessarily agree with that. The, the, The motive is, doesn't necessarily have to happen. Now, the means does right. Does the person have the means to commit this crime, right? And and that's not just is he strong enough? Is he capable of wielding a knife? Is this suspect capable of of committing a crime against three people? That's not just the means. The means are is this person capable of committing that crime without leaving evidence? Do they know how not to leave DNA, their own DNA behind? You know, if we take the sheath out of it. Koberger, from our understanding, didn't leave any DNA behind. And there was no DNA on him, uh, on his person, you know, when they arrested him, apartment, in his car, any of those places, right? So we are to believe that it is Koberger, and we are to believe that the person is super intelligent. You know, let's take Koberger out of it. We're to believe that this is person that committed this crime had to have been super intelligent and, and trained and or have knowledge of how not to leave their DNA behind, how not to compromise a scene, how not to bring evidence from a scene back on to back with you. Right. That's another thing that you, you can't have. You know, when you get trained in forensics and things of that nature, you go in there and, you know, although I was never trained in forensics, I knew people who were the, the, you can't contaminate the scene and you can't take the scene with you. Those are pretty much the biggest, you know, rules there. You know, the means is can a brat student who is angered, who is maybe jealous or disappointed that his ex girlfriend is moving away and had been drinking that night? Does he have the means to commit a crime without leaving uh, DNA, his DNA behind, uh, without having been scratched, having been any of those things in a a moment of anger? Because those things typically, when it's a crime of passion, uh, they're not really well planned out, right? It's something that's in the heat of the moment. And there's usually a lot of evidence left behind, you know, does, you know, um, anybody that you guys want to, kind of point the finger to, do they have the means and the knowledge and the education to go in there and forensically make sure that they don't leave anything behind or take with them outside of the knife sheath. And the knife sheath is a little bit different because it was left behind, in my opinion, probably by accident. If you go look at BTK, he left his gun behind at one of his cases. So leaving an item or an important item like that behind you know, during the moment when you're in adrenaline rush and, and tunnel vision takes place and you know, havoc is going on. It's not that unreasonable, to be honest with you. So let's continue. Brian Koberger's defense team has state court filings that there is no connection between Koberger and the victims. All right, no, I've already read that. With the gag order in place, information is restricted, but filings do provide some insight into the defense's case, says CBS News consultant uh, Brianna Fox, a professor of criminology at the University of South Florida and a former FBI agent. I don't think that there's a, this is a slam-dunk case. Fox tells 48 hours, I think that the defense is alleging there was a rush to judgment. Law enforcement made an arrest too fast, and they focused on their client too quickly. You know, I do see that that could have been a, an issue. You know, when you read the um, New York Times article, it indicates that on December 19th, December 20th, is when they had Brian Koberger's name as the person whose DNA was on uh, the knife sheath. Now, they went and got a warrant for his phone activity for the night. And what they used as far as evidence for that warrant was his knowledge in criminal justice and his, um, special training and knowing how not to basically, um, what not to do. And when, when you're committing a crime like this, that would be a tall tale to give you away that you are the, the suspect, but any criminology student could would be a suspect at that point, any, any law enforcement agency or personnel, you know, everybody there would be a suspect if that was the only, or not necessarily a suspect, but you know, could have their rights taken away from them if they were subject to an incident or accused of an incident. Right. And I don't think that that is necessarily uh, enough, in my opinion, to violate Brian Koberger's rights to look at his phone pings. I- I've said it many times. I think that there's a lot of hurdles in this case, even though I think that law enforcement got this right. I think that there is definitely a lot of hurdles in this case and his cell- cellular data and that warrant to get it, in my opinion, is one of them. I, I honestly don't know why Uh, there hasn't been a motion to suppress it. Maybe there's more information that the defense knows that we don't know that would basically allow it to stay in. To me, I think that was going to be a big issue. But in that article, they indicate that Moscow Police Department basically had Brian Koberger's name, December 19th, I believe it was. And they are they're pulling his his uh, phone records December 23rd, they're pulling his parents' trash December 27th, and they're making the arrest, I believe, like the 30th. Now, that is pretty quick, you know, from the time that you got his name to the time, you know, you want to arrest him. Now, there's a couple of things that they don't know, right? Uh, they don't know if Brian Koberger is going back to WSU. He's left. He's traveled cross-country already. So maybe there's a heightened sense of urgency thinking. Maybe perhaps, you know, he's stopping out with his parents. Think about Brian Laundrie, right? He went back home went to his parents' house. And then, you know, he did what he did to himself. You know, is Brian Koberger capable of not doing that, that, that degree of taking his own, you know, because he wasn't in a relationship or anything with any of these, uh, any of the victims. Maybe he goes back, hangs out with the parents and then flees to Canada or, or somewhere else. Right. You know, that's probably the thinking that they have, that this guy fled and um to apprehend him before, you know, he ends up, being the next fugitive that they're traveling through the Pennsylvania outback to try to find, right? Like it just went through one of those here recently. I do think that this case may have moved a little quick. And I think that not changing the car from a 2011, a 2013 Elantra to a possibly a 2011 to 2016 Elantra before his arrest or not, at least putting out there that it's a possibility that it was a uh, a newer vehicle is also going to be another hurdle for this case. Now, again, I'm not saying Hoberger is innocent or I want him to walk on a technicality or any of those things. I want the prosecution to be able to convict him and convict him rightfully. I do think he committed this crime, but I do think that there are going to be some legal hurdles. In this case 100%. We'll continue here. It says with a gag order in place, information is restricted, but filing. Uh, do provide some insight into the defense case to CBS News consultant. All right, no, I already read that. Damn, dyslexia. I keep getting the, the the paragraphs backwards on the ones I've read and didn't. Defense filings have tried to poke holes in some of the information alleged in the affidavit released in Kovar's arrest, such as a cell phone data that picked up Kovar's victim's house and security camera that was captured on the Alantra near the murder scene. The defense has pointed to concerns, says Fox, whether Brian Kovar's car was accurately identified in the out. Oh outset uh, or if the identification was affected affected after the authorities learned the model of the car he drove. So basically what I was saying is the question is going to come up was the vehicle change as far as the year model it was only after you found out that Koberger was a possible suspect. I think that's going to be a hurdle. While the alleged cell phone data makes one suspicious of Koberger, uh, says Bloom, it's not putting someone at someone's doorstep. It's putting someone in someone's neighborhood. And that's a large difference. And if you can convince a jury of this, you can raise doubt about the validity and the accuracy of the cell phone data. I think you're halfway there to getting the case against Koberger, either a hung jury or not guilty verdict. Christy Gonzalez says, regardless of the defense's claims, she remains steadfast that her belief that Brian Koberger is responsible for the murders and that whatever the trial brings, her family will be there. He's going to feel all of us just staring at the back of his head, said Christy Gonzalez. And he knows what he did to our daughter. Like I said, I, I do strongly also believe that They did get his guy. There's a few things that just you can't like, come on now, you know, you know, the story that needs to be made up to for it to not be Koberger is just I haven't found one that's reasonable. You know, you have to account for his, you know, DNA being on the knife sheath. You have to account for his phone being off during the time of the incident. You have to account for, you know, what he, you know, his actions that he was doing before and even the next day you know, there's so many things that have to be, oh, the vehicle without a front license plate seen on camera. I know that they couldn't tell what year it was, but at a certain point in the investigation, we found out that they thought it was a Nissan Sentra, right? And, you know, law enforcement can be wrong. And as evidence comes to light and more footage comes to light, you know, you can accurately change, you know, the flow of where your investigation is going, you know, just because like, you think one thing, and then if evidence comes out that it's possibly something different, you know, a law enforcement officer or an investigator cannot just hold on to, oh, you know what? No, but I think it was this guy. It doesn't matter what this evidence brings up. You know, you can't do that, right? And a good investigator doesn't. And so I, I don't know these investigators if there's any actual evidence of it that's exculpatory against Koberger. I don't think there is. Um, you know, I feel that it would have been, you know, how to the moon, like. I think Ann Taylor would have come out with some kind of, you know, we've seen her comments and the way she words things in her, in the uh, court filings to kind of put some stuff out there. I think I would have, would have, we would have seen something that would have been like, you know, the state can't explain why, you know, this exculpatory evidence that Koberger wasn't there and there's something, you know, a camera or something that has him somewhere else, you know, just like they did with the no DNA in, in his car. Right. They came out saying that there's, nomination for this. You know, I think that was a big highlight to their case. And that's going to be one of their big highlights to, as to why, you know, he he is innocent, is that how could he be committed this crime and not gotten DNA on this house, apartment, or any of those things. When it comes to what Steve was saying, I think that there is probably evidence that would indicate that Kaylee had slept in the bed. You know, her position between the wall and Maddie's and Madison as well would indicate that. And you know, I think that kind of puts that to rest as far as, you know, a lot of the other information. A lot of it was just kind of a little bit of, you know, speculation. But what we do know or what we what they probably can't prove because they did tell me that they have screenshots. Now, I haven't seen the screenshots myself. Like Christy did tell me that they have screenshots of. Um, the accounts that they believe were the real Brian Koberger accounts following and liking the uh, victim's pictures. So that's a possibility. I don't know if they are, in fact, really his. I mean, is there a possibility that, you know, one of these, you know, they were telling people, obviously, right? They told the family. They probably told the other victims' families. Is it possible that you know maybe an investigator told somebody else, or it leaked out from someone else, and it kind of spread to somebody who was a uh, you know a troll or something? Maybe you know that's possible. Uh, I doubt it. Let's see. Um As far as like the stuff that he did say that does make sense as well as like you know he talked about how she was assaulted, his daughter, and and stabbed and. They believe that because of that, and the injuries were because of the fact that uh, she tried to escape. You know, the only concern I had with that, like I mentioned earlier, was you know, where's the uh, where's the scream? You know what I mean? You know, there's audio from a nearby house that picks up whimpering, probably whispering, but he doesn't pick up a scream. That concerns me a little bit, right? We'll see. We'll see. Trials not too far, but we are we are coming back tonight. Me and the guys will be back tonight. We're going to be something a little bit more conspiratorial. like I mentioned before, you know, we do talk about some paranormal stuff. And uh, here in this past week, there was a uh, Mexico Congress um, that occurred and referencing some alien bodies that were found. Uh, We're going to look at those pictures. We're going to look at the MRIs. We're going to look at all those stuff and try to figure out if it's real or fake. Stay tuned. That'll happen at 7.35 p.m. Central tonight. Like and subscribe. Ring that notification bell. We'll see you guys tonight. Peace out.